All right. Um, you can open your Bible to the book of Nahum. I won't judge you if you look at the table of contents first. Uh, so, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. So, it falls right in that line. Um, so, uh, the book of Nahum. Now, when is the last time you heard a, a sermon series through the book of Nahum? Now, how, how many of you, if we had to stand up right now and just give a rough outline of the book of Nahum, would be like, all right, here it is, chapters 1, 2, and how many are there again? Uh, well, um, you know, I, we're, we're doing something a little bit different on Wednesday night than, we, than we've been doing especially when it comes to the minor prophets, the goal is really to go through each one of them. Now, some of the prophets, like the longer ones, Jeremiah or Isaiah, we've already been through Isaiah, but um, Ezekiel, ones like that are, are considerable in length, and we won't do necessarily every verse of those, but some of the minor prophets, we're going to go through verse by verse. And now, we'll, we'll do it in a speedier fashion and things like that, but um, but we want to get a good sense of why they're here. There's, there's a reason, I think, that most of the time we don't hear sermons preached from Nahum. Because the entire book, nearly 100%, outside of maybe five verses, is all judgment. And it's very dark. And, and that's probably one of the reasons that we don't hear a lot of sermons. Probably a shame that we don't. But what we want to do in this study is not just go through it verse by verse and read the book. The book, Obviously, we want to do that. But we want to do two things. We want to put the prophet in the context. So that way we understand the prophecies, the oracles of judgment that are coming against whomever they're coming against. So we want to put them in their context so we can understand why these things are said. But then we actually want to read some of the poetry so that we can make sense of it. Once we know the context, I think some of the poetry will actually make a lot more sense to you. So we want to understand the prophet inside their context. But then, we don't want to just leave it there. We want to actually figure out, what am I supposed to do with this? Here I am in a New Testament context. I'm not in that country, or I'm not in that nation, or I'm not receiving that judgment. So what do I do with that? How does that apply to me, the Christian? So if I'm sitting down on my couch and i got my yearly reading program ahead of me and I'm go making a trip through the Minor Prophets, I want to be able to read something and go, all right, that is beneficial for me this way, right? So we've got to do that, and that's the goal every week for the next many weeks as we go through these prophets. So uh, each week is going to have kind of the same flow, where we're going to do the background, where this prophet is, to make sense of it. Then we're going to figure out the context. What is the meaning of the prophecies he's giving at that time? Then we want to look at how does this actually connect to Jesus? We, we talked about uh, last week and, and several weeks before that that Jesus is telling his disciples all the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, it all points to me. And so we got to do that with Nahum, right? Which is all judgment. we got to figure out how does that point to Jesus? And then once we do that, now apply it to us who are under the umbrella of Christ here in the New Testament. So that's, that's going to be the goal week in and week out. So let's do that this morning, or this, this morning. I don't even know what time of day it is. Um, let's, let's do that this evening. Um, Nahum the Elkishite comes onto the scene following the exile of North, the northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria. Now, we don't know much about the prophet because he doesn't, really, he, he doesn't really tell much about himself. And he's not referred to anywhere else in the Old Testament um, except for this little introduction. So he's not mentioned anywhere el elsewhere in the Old Testament is the, the blank there. But um, he's not mentioned anywhere else, so we don't get any real background on him. He kind of comes out of the blue, really, so to speak. And, and so... There's really not much else to fill in except for verse 1 that says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. There you go. That's, that's how much we know about him. Okay. Now, we do get some idea of when and where he's going, obviously, throughout the letter. So we, we do have some things to fill in there. Um, his prophecy against Nineveh is of special interest 
really only because there's one other prophet that we do know of that went to Nineveh. Remember his name? Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, didn't want to at first, eventually was made to, and still didn't like it very much when he went. Um, and, he, and, and do you remember what the outcome of that book is for the Ninevites? Remember what happened to the Ninevites as a result of Jonah preaching in the middle of their town? They repented. Yeah. They repented and turned back to the Lord, and the Lord saved them. And that's when, you know, the book of Jonah takes kind of a turn to the south because Jonah is like, I knew you were going to do that, and that's why I didn't want to come here to begin with, right? Now, uh, Nineveh is in the nation of Assyria, all right? It's the capital city of Assyria. So some, many times in the Old Testament, you will see a, a place referred to as the country, and sometimes you will hear a place referred to as its biggest city. And so sometimes you'll hear it referred to as Nineveh, and sometimes you'll hear it referred to as Assyria. But the point is, uh, he, he was the other prophet that went to Nineveh. And this time, Nahum, as opposed to Jonah, Nahum is preaching a prophecy of, ju- of the judgment of God upon it. All right? So unlike Jonah, who's saying, you know, 30 days and Nineveh will, or 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, they turn and repent and, and they're saved. Nahum is much, much darker than that, and it seems like the book on, on Assyria has, is closed, and God is pronouncing His judgment upon it. So, although we can't really date exactly when this prophecy took place, there are some things that may give us some clues. So, first of all, we know that Nineveh eventually fell to Babylon in 612, all right? So that tells us that, obviously, this was before that. Also, Nahum makes no real reference to Babylon at all. So it seems like he's probably a good bit before Nineveh actually fell. Like, this is coming a little bit before. Now, that could be wrong. That's just that's speculation, right? I mean, it could be. But it, he might just not have mentioned them, and that... You know, it's fine. He didn't have to. But uh, that probably means that it was a, a, a good bit uh, before that, coming from a much earlier vantage point. So, um, now, even though Assyria's most successful military campaign was against the northern kingdom, Judah um, also experienced some suffering. Uh, that's the southern kingdom of Judah. Also spirit, experienced some suffering from the nation during the reign of Manasseh. So if you look at your, on the back of your, or at the very back of your packet there, um, just before the bibliography, we have this sort of hopefully handy-dandy little uh, chart that we've got here of where these prophets fall, or what the best guess is for where these prophets fall. You see the reign of Manasseh is, uh, it's on the right-hand column, probably three-fourths of the way down. Underneath Hezekiah, between Hezekiah and Ammon, you see Manasseh there is from 696 to 642. And it seems like Nahum actually makes reference to Assyria's activity in the southern kingdom. All right, and what they've already done to the southern kingdom. And it's really veiled, all right? So you might just miss it if you weren't paying attention to it. But if you look at Nahum 2, 11 to 13, which is in your verse pack there, It says, Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Now, if you didn't know, Assyria had carried out a campaign in the south that they were uh, more or less not really necessarily sanctioned to do, then you wouldn't know that that's probably what he's referring to there. But he's, he's talking about, uh, um, it seems like, a time w- when they went in during Manasseh's reign and invaded the south. Uh, and so if that be the case, then that probably puts Nahum somewhere between when the Babylonians came in and when, uh, when they came into Judah. And best guess is somewhere during the time of Josiah and right around that area of Josiah, knowing that uh, Assyria was still kind of a threat to them in the south during Josiah's reign. 
So that's, that's, now that's not great. That's not like, hey, we've got an exact date, but you can kind of use some clues to go, it's probably somewhere in this area of time, right? But it's enough to help us kind of understand what's going on. Because we do know that Assyria is going to fall. They're coming down. And we know that that happens in 612. And so everything that Nahum is prophesying to Assyria is destruction. The book is sealed. You are done. And God frequently does this from time to time. He will raise up an oppressor to come in and actually discipline, punish his people, reprimand them for their idolatry. And then, inevitably, and he does this with the Babylonians too, inevitably that nation carries it out too far, more than what they were designed to do, and they continue to worship their own idols. And so God then uses his same powers of judgment to come in on them and actually execute judgment on that nation. Right? So we know Assyria is going to die. We know that they're going to be uh, punished by the Lord. And so uh, we know that it's, it's going to be probably somewhere in this area that, that, um, that Nahum is, is prophesying. Now, exact dates when it comes to Nahum's prophecy is not really super important. We just want to know what kind of context we're looking at, right? So with that in mind, as we read the poetry that Nahum is, is giving in his prophecy to Assyria, see if some of these things begin to make sense just in the context that they're in, right? So we're going to read a couple of things. And what we want to do in this context is really figure out what is God saying about himself to them? What is he saying he's going to do? And what is really the nature and character of God that we're seeing on display in this text? Okay, so we're going to look at that. Let's do this as we go through each passage. Uh, and by the end of this, we'll have read the entire uh, book, hopefully, Lord willing. Um, but we'll read it in different uh, sections. So first, we're going to look at Nahum 1, 2-6, and then verses 8-14. to 14. There is a verse skipped in the middle for a good reason that we'll get to later. Uh, so what are we seeing about God's justice here that he uh, is bringing? Look at this. The Lord is uh, jealous and, av and avenging. A jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Are you kind of getting a feel of what he's saying here about himself? The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Well, that's good, but it doesn't seem like Nineveh is going to reap the slowness of his anger, all right, but the greatness of his power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel. These right here. This is when it gets kind of hard. We get confused. Bashan and Carmel are two mountains, two peaks in Israel. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? We see this phrase before in Scripture. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Sounds very apocalyptic, doesn't it? And, and, and our tendency without any context when we read the prophets is to go immediately to Revelation because that's the only book that we have that feels this way, right? In fact, we actually get some of these same words and phrases in Revelation. Repeated. Remember in Revelation 6, at the very end of the chapter of Revelation 6, the Lamb is revealed on His throne, and it says all the kings and all the people in authority and people basically who are wicked and evil are running and they're begging for the rocks to crush them or fall on them and hide them for the fury of the wrath of the Lamb has come and who can stand is the question that they ask. And you see some of those same questions asked here. What is the big point that in his prophecy that Nahum is trying to get across or that God is trying to get across through Nahum? 
What, what, what sense about God are we seeing here? Yeah, his vengeance is his. He has vengeance for his enemies, James says. And, and he, has, he keeps wrath for his enemies, he says. And, th- and this, I think, is, is super important here that as we, as we see a passage that is clearly directed at people who are guilty of transgressing God, he's, Nahum is setting the precedent that God will no means, by no means clear the guilty. All right. Well, you might have some New Testament things you're, you might be thinking of right now already, and, that, and that's good. But, but we, we see that already. Well, let's look at verse 8 and let's see how he continues this. Now, this is all chapter 1. He's developing the character of God. We're getting to know who this God actually is that's coming against Assyria. He says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make com- a complete end of the adversaries. So the enemies are already set up in this prophecy as diametrically opposed to God, not only that, but God is powerful enough to kill them. He says, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Uh, uh, note, note here that wh- why would he make a special point to say he will pursue his enemies into darkness? M- imagine a day where there's no electricity. You don't just have a, a flashlight that you can go by. Pursuing your enemies into darkness is a fool's errand. Not for God. In other words, you cannot hide from him. He will pursue you even in darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. Remember, who is the you here? Remember, this is Assyria that we're talking about, or Nineveh. Uh, for from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Now, this is, this is a, a particularly important thing for Assyria, especially they're the world's superpower at the time. They have the largest army. I mean, picture America, right? Like a prophecy coming against something like that that has the strongest military and might and says... To them, you're many and you're strong, but you're going to be cut down. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. All right. Now, look here. Um, So, who is he talking about here? Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Who's that to? And now, I will break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. Who's this to? Is it Judah? What's that? Yeah. This, this is a common phrase here for taking you out of slavery. Break his yoke from you. Who's, un, who's in the yoke of Assyria right now? Israel is in the yoke. The northern kingdom is in the yoke. Uh, he says this to Babylon. This exact thing to Babylon. I'll break your yoke from you. The Lord has given a commandment has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved images image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Now he goes back to th- this is why it gets confusing in poetry because he now, now he's going back to talking about Assyria, right? So you're trying to track who the yous are in all the pronouns, and that's where it gets really difficult. But it seems to me his this little parentheses here, or this little place here is quote, I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. This is turning to, to Israel, the northern kingdom, who is now in captivity under Assyria and saying, I have I I will break his yoke from you. He said, first, I I'm gonna destroy you, Assyria, and I'm gonna break his yoke from you, and, and turning to two different people here, two different people groups. So what we see, what, what is, it becomes evident, is a picture of God's judgment. And the, the picture that we see here very clearly is that it, he, he will in no way clear the guilty, whoever they may be. He sees Nineveh and all of the atrocities, even though they try to hide in the dark that they have committed, and he is going to hold them responsible. 
So we already see here a, a, a theme coming to the front of God's justice. He takes account of everything that's done and all the guilty he will punish. Right? He's, no, he's going to no, by no means clear the guilty. But then we also see another element come to the fore in chapter 3. So chapter 1 really is Nahum all establishing all of God's majesty, his grandeur, and his judgment. And it's clear he's not going to clear the guilty. He's a holy God, and he's just. And anyone that does wickedness, he's going to pursue. He's going to find them out, and he's not just going to clear you. Because he's, just as he's holy, he's also just. All right. Let's read from chapter 3. Another element of God's uh, judgment. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel. Okay, this right here, we start getting into some real poetry, all right? So you can kind of, you're building a picture in your mind that Nahum is painting as he's going through this. Listen to this. The crack of the whip and, the ru and rumble of the wheel. Galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glinting spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and, uh, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Isn't that incredibly poetic? He's just, he's describing the marching of the army of Assyria as they go and invade. And what is the result of their invasion? Well, it's one of two things. Either they capture people and kill them, so many people that they have to, they trip over the dead bodies. They have so many dead bodies that are, that are crying out from the earth against them. Heaps of corpses, they stumble over dead bodies. Or, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, and graceful and deadly are her charms, who betrays the nations with her whorings and the peoples with her charms. In other words, I'll protect you if you surrender. Right? So there's one of two ways they either trap people. They go in and kill them, and they've heaped up bodies, or they pursue them, and they, they persuade them to be allies and, and to pay tribute to them because they'll protect you with their military might and their strength. If you worship their gods, if you obey their kings, right? So the, there's, there's two traps that, the that they've laid for the nations and that which, for which they're going to be judged. Then he says in verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. Now it gets pretty graphic here. And I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. So there, there's a, uh, he's bringing shame upon the nation. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? So here we get, obviously, Nineveh is being called out. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek for you comforters? All right, let's keep going. Eight to ten. Are you better than Thebes? Anybody know what Thebes is? What is Thebes? Let's see if you can figure it out by the context. That sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea. It's a city. Where is it at? In Egypt. Gave it away. Her rampart a sea and water her wall. Cush. Anybody know Cush? Her strength. Near Egypt, I think it's uh, Ethiopia, if, I'm, if I know my geography right. Cush was her strength. Egypt too, and without limit, put and uh, put and the uh, king put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. So what what is he doing here? Why is he talking about Thebes in Egypt? Previous judgment. So you think you're strong? Do you remember Egypt? What I did to Egypt? All right. Put in the Libyans were helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the end, at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast. 
and all her great men were bound in chains. What does this mean? Lots were cast for honored men. Slavery. Taken into slavery. And all her great men were bound in chains. So another element of, as we're reading through this, the way we can kind of tell some, the meaning of what he's getting at. So for her honored men, lots were cast. You're like, I don't know what that means. Look at the next line. Hebrew poetry normally has two lines, or at least two lines. The first line tells you something, and you have no idea what it's talking about. The next line clarifies what it just said. So it's really convenient if you don't know poetry and you're not really used to reading poetry, especially poetry of judgment, to read the Old Testament because you go one line, it tells you, you have no idea. The next line clarifies what the previous line just said about it. All right? So her, all her great men were bound in chains. Slavery. She's taken off into slavery. So are you better than Thebes is the question that he asks. No, you're not. Just like they were taken into captivity, so are you taken into captivity. Verse 11, You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first-ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women. Um, what does he mean by this? Your troops are women in your midst. What's that? Okay. They're weeping, maybe? Oh, they're weaker. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I thought you said weeping. Yeah, they're weaker. So he, he's basically saying, hey, you're, you're, you think your troops are impressive? They're not. They're going to fall relatively quickly. The gates of your land that are supposed to be closed are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured, devoured your bars. So, so uh, and then one more. Let's look at 14 and 19. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick, of the brick mold. So what is, he do, what is he saying here? What is he in this verse? What, what is he saying? Yeah, why is he telling them that? Yeah. And, and he, he, so he, why, but what is his, what is his point? It's useless. Yeah. You, you can do this if you want to, but your gates are wide open. So go. Get your brick mold. Build your houses. Build, build your fortresses. Di yeah, di yeah, exactly. Dig your trenches. This is sarcasm. He said, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Do all that. Your gates are wide open and your troops are women. So it ain't going to help you. Right? Like he's just said that and now he's coming back on the back end. There's, there's sarcasm here. Their fire will devour you. So when you go into your forts and when you go into the clay, remember this is God who seeks out his enemies in the dark. He has night vision. So you're gonna, you, you can build your trenches and you can do all that, but in that place there, fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. Again, sarcasm. Go ahead. Have tons more soldiers. Have tons more babies. B build up your army as much as you want. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fence in a day of cold when the sun rises, they fly away. What is he saying here? Your princes are like grasshoppers. How are they like grasshoppers? There's a lot of them, but what happens when, uh, when the sun rises? They fly away. You want your princes and your commanders of the armies and your leaders? Do you want them all leaving? No. Here's what he's saying. When, the, when, the, when they come in, when the invading armies come in, the sword and comes to cut you off and the fire comes to devour you, all your leaders are going to run. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria. There you go, Nineveh and Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you, what do they do? Clap their hands over you. Why do they clap their hands? 
you're done, they clap their hands in celebration, right? You're, you're, they, finally, Assyria, who has been the oppressor, who's heaped up all the dead bodies, who's made us all pay tribute, who's put us all under his thumb, who's made us serve as gods, is done. And everyone is celebrating. There's no one mourning. Because everyone wants you wiped off the face of the earth. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So he tells you that right there. This is the reason they clap their hands. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So what is it that we're seeing here about God's judgment on Nineveh? Well, there's a couple things, and this is I, w- I want you to kind of gather this. We'll, we'll talk more about this in a second. One element of God's judgment that we see here is that sometimes judgment is retributive. Retributive. What does that mean, retributive? Retribution. Payback. All right? Sometimes it's retributive, meaning God's judgment sometimes comes to people simply to pay them back for evil. That is not what we always think about in judgment. Sometimes what we want in judgment is restorative, meaning we want God to use His judgment to bring people back. Remember, there's a nation that's held under the thumb of Assyria at this very moment. It's the northern kingdom, right? For them, what is God's judgment? It's restorative. Meaning, like we talked about with Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. He's planning to bring them back into the land. That's the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is the same thing. I sent you out there, but look, I'm going to break his yoke on, uh, over you. That's what he tells them. I'm going to get you out of slavery. So for them, it's restorative. His judgment is meant as a, as a punishment so that they will be corrected and they will come back and turn back to the Lord. But, but that's not so with Assyria. Sometimes God's judgment is retributive meaning he's coming to pay you back, and there's absolutely nothing you can or will do about it. And all of that picture that Nahum is painting, it should make us really kind of have chills. Shudder at the thought that God is like that too in judgment. So sometimes he has a way of chastening human beings and bringing them back to himself, But in the end, his judgment has a character of rightness that has no further end beyond expressing the reality that a person or a nation shall receive from God's hand exactly what he deserves. This is part of the problem that we have with hell often, especially as we deal with people in the world. What do they say? I can't imagine a God who would. Right? That's how it begins. So, Because even in them, there is this feeling that God's judgment is never retributive. It's always restorative. Okay, fine, God would be mad at me, but but never would He he go that length to send me to hell, surely. Because for them, it's always restorative. His purpose is always to bring them to Himself. But it's very clear in the Minor Prophets, that's not true. And if you believe that, you're not believing in, a God, in, in the God of the Bible. It's un- inconvenient sometimes for us as we're engaging with the world. It's hard. But it's true. So a- as we kind of come to wrestle with who God really is and is revealing Himself to be, we sometimes get to this part right here where we go, man, that's harsh. But if, but if, if a preacher is going to stand up behind the pulpit Doesn't he have to preach hell? Of course he does. He has to. And what happens if he's not doing that? If he doesn't preach actual consequence for sin? Actual judgment that God will carry out? What happens if he doesn't preach that? Well, then he's not preaching the actual God in the Bible. Yeah, it's not going to change it. He's made a God of his own image. Trend and, and, and impose some text from the Bible and put it on this God that he's made before his people. And he said, here, this is who he is. But we don't get the privilege of editing out the scriptures. But when I asked the question at the beginning, how many of you have heard a, a sermon series preached through Nahum or a deep study done on Nahum, 
most of us are probably going to say no. And there's a really convenient reason, i uh, guessing, why. You see how much judgment is in it. What is a New Testament preacher going to carry to his con- congregation with this as the message? God's judgment is retributive sometimes and not always restorative. What am I going to tell the congregation then? How's this going to make you feel good about your day? How's this going to prepare you for your week? Right? You end up with actually a picture of who God is instead. All right. So then, one last thing here about God's judgment. And this may give a little bit of hope here. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the, this is chapter 2, by the way. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the, so he's talking here, I think, to Assyria. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. What's he doing? What's he saying here? Yeah. So, in the midst of all this judgment against Nineveh, we get this really quick picture. Verse 2. The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob and the majesty of Israel. Why will Assyria, in spite of building their armies, digging their trenches, fortifying their walls, closing their gates, why will Assyria not be successful? Because of verse 2. The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Okay? Let's read another one. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. You can hear this going on. You can picture it. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Because all their men are gone. They're taken. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters... <laughs> Picture this. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! They cry. But does the water listen? No. It's like, it's like the waters are running away and they're, they're screaming at the ocean. Come back, waves! Come back! Does the water listen and obey them? Absolutely not. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all the precious things. God's going to bring judgment to them, and not only that, He's going to restore Israel. And what's going to happen as a result? What what are they getting after Assyria is ruined? Gold. Does it remind you of Egypt? He pulls them out of Egypt, and all the Egyptians give them the gold as they go. You don't want to take Israel into captivity, right? (laughs) Because you're going to end up giving them all your gold, basically. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. This is verse 10. Uh, Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place. So here's the context we got earlier. Where is the lion's den? So you, you were at one time successful. You went and you fed on on the uh, you fed your young lions from the flesh of other people. You brought brought them back to your people. All the plunder and the spoils, where the lionesses went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled his prey, uh, strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey 
and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. So what, what I want us to see, part, partly, is that we're building a picture of not only what God is going to do, but the relationship that he has with Nineveh versus the relationship that he has with Judah. Let's look at just a couple more. The Lord is good. In the midst of all the judgment, remember this is in chapter 1, this is in verse 7, this is in between up there where it says he will by no means clear the guilty, that bullet point, Nahum 1, 2 to 6, and 8 to 4. I skipped over verse 7. Look at what verse 7 says. The Lord is good. Judgment. The Lord is good. More judgment. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Do you see what message is coming through in the midst of the judgment? All this judgment filled to the brim with judgment. And right there in the middle, the Lord is good and He knows those who take refuge in Him. So in other words, He doesn't just go through the dark and seek out the guilty and is able to find all of His enemies and keep track of them all. He also knows those who are His in the midst of the battle. So where some might be in, a, in the midst of a normal battle, collateral damage. They were innocent and they got hit with the bomb. That is not the case for God's people. He doesn't lose track of any of them. He, he knows those who take refuge in Him. Look at verse 15. Now this one you might have heard. Alright. Behold, upon the mountains... The feet of him who brings good news, who publishes, what is that word? Peace. Does this sound like a peaceful book? Not at all. It's not at all. But you get this one verse right at the tail end of so much judgment, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Who is this peace for? For his children. You might say that it was just a few verses earlier. Those who take refuge in him. So in the midst of chapter 1, you get these two little vignettes. Judgment. But he knows those who take refuge in him. Judgment. Man, in the midst of all this judgment... How beautiful are the feet of him who shares the good news. Yeah? You get it? Like, if you were hearing all this judgment from Nahum, and then he turns to you who are in captivity and he says, but not you. Don't you want to bend down and kiss that guy's feet? Oh, thank you, Jesus. It's not me, right? Because all of this sounds terrible, but it makes the feet of him who brings the good news even sweeter. All right. So what we see in all of this is that there is an element of God's salvation that comes to the foreground. That it's not all judgment. There are verses of salvation throughout this book. And what it means is that salvation for God's people comes directly in association with the judgment of God's enemies. Your salvation is directly connected to the judgment that God is going to bring on other people, on the rest of the world. The judgment that He's got for you is restorative. He brings you in through it. The judgment that He's got for His enemies is retributive. They're going to receive just rewards for their evil. And in the midst of it, you have salvation. So it comes in association with the judgment. What are you spared from? Are you beginning to kind of start to see where this, the gospel message is starting to come through? So what we want to do, um, oh, let me say this first. What we have to remember is that first and foremost, the prophecies of Nahum are fulfilled in 612 B.C. So, so let's just, if we're just staying in the context of Nahum, we're not looking any further, we have to say, okay, the prophecies of Nahum, which are telling Israel, I'm bringing you back, I've got plans for you, basically, and telling Assyria, you're going to die, 
Well, those are filled in 612 B.C. That came to fruition. That was, that, that was a prophecy beforehand that actually came to fruition. After their conquest of the Assyrian Empire was no longer, and Babylon took over as a superpower in the East. Okay? Now, but here's what our goal is. It's not just, here, here's the, the Old Testament context. Okay? So we want to understand what it means to a people in the Old Testament. Okay? That's goal number one. Before we look anywhere to Revelation, before we look anywhere to our own lives, before we look anywhere to anything like that, we want to figure out what does this mean for the people there? Okay, well, it means Assyria is going to die. It means the people of Israel are going to be restored, and he's got his people marked out, and he's going to save them out of the midst of this judgment. Okay, but that's, that's not the end. Then we want to say, okay, Jesus tells us, the New Testament tells us, that all of the Old Testament is leading to Christ. So our goal is to then take that context and go, how does Jesus uniquely fulfill all of the things prophesied in this book? Okay? That's our next question. How does this actually point us to the cross? How does this point us to Jesus, His incarnation, His crucifixion, His resurrection? That's a tomb. All right? His resurrection and His ascension. How does this point us to the reign of Christ? All right? So that's, that's goal number two. We've got to figure that out as well. So when you come to applying the message of Nahum to a New Testament context, it can be kind of challenging because, as we've already seen, the overwhelming message of judgment to a particular people at a particular time. In all three chapters, glimpses of hope are few and far between, but they're not non-existent. That said, we can see Nahum's prophecy gaining further fulfillment in Jesus' first coming. That's what I mean. When we read the Old Testament, before we get to Revelation, which we all want to get to, because that's what it sounds like to us, we want to stop at the cross and go, how does Jesus actually say, all of that, it's fulfilled in me right now. Okay? So, we, so it receives further fulfillment in Jesus' first coming. The judgment depicted against Assyria is but a foretaste of what was said about the purpose of Jesus' first coming. Now, you don't normally think about this. If I asked you, what was the purpose of Jesus' coming? You probably would, would cite verses that say something like, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Right? Does Jesus say that? Yeah, he says that. But we stop there often, as if that was the only thing Jesus said about his first coming, and it's not. Look at what he said, verse 36 of chapter 3 in John. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what is the purpose of Jesus' coming? Well, John's telling us that he came as a light in the darkness to shine a light on everybody. And what he was about to reveal are the ones who believe in the Son and the ones who don't believe, and it's evident they don't believe, by their lack of obedience. And what happens for them? We would call these enemies. What does Nahum tell us about the enemies of God? He will by no means clear the guilty. The wrath of God remains on him. All right. What about 522? Does it say also in John? For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that, he may, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. They honor him. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Alright? Look at what Jesus says here in 939. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world. No, you came to seek and to save that which was lost. Is that the only reason? No. 
For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. People who look on the Son and honor Him. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near Him said, heard these things and said to Him, Are we also blind? Are you calling us blind? You calling us blind? Oh, no. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, we're not blind, we see. Exactly. And the guilt remains on you, because you don't believe me. So it's for judgment that he came. And it's seen here in the relationship between the disciples and the Pharisees. The disciples look on him and they believe, they honor him. But there is a whole group of other people who see Jesus and reject him. So what is the purpose of his first coming? Well, it's separating the two, the wheat from the chaff. So we see the judgment of God preached in Nahum. How do we see that come to ultimate fulfillment in the cross? Your eternal destination is contingent upon what you believe about what that man did there 2,000 years ago on the cross. Did he die and go into the grave and then raise again? Do you believe that he's the Son of God? That he suffered for your sins on your behalf? That he took the wrath of God for you? That he rose again on the third day and he promises you resurrection and eternal life? If you do, you honor the Son, though you were blind, though you couldn't see. The Spirit opened your eyes and you can see the truth of Christ. But those who claim that they can see, I know truth, they fall. Paul puts it like this, a stumbling block to the, the Greeks, is it Greek? I can't get it backwards, a, 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 an offense to the Jews and a stumbling block to the Greeks. But to those who are being saved, Christ is the righteousness of God. So how was Jesus' first coming? Like the book of Nahum? He's separating the wheat from the chaff. He's coming to judge. Jesus' first judgment, first coming, is judgment on the world. And John tells us the way it is judgment on the world is that he is true light from God. And the world is exposed in all her deeds when Jesus comes. And the ones who know that they are sinners and in need of salvation receive it in Christ. And those who think they have no wrongs or that they can work out salvation on their own, they die. Just like Assyria. And there's going to be no one to save them. All right. So, so that's the first part of it. We, we, we look forward and we say this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ's first coming. But looking forward into our own future, so this is now, now we're starting to get to, this isn't all. We didn't just stop at the cross. We, we did stop at the cross. We're not, just, we're not setting up camp there. Christians can see the graphic nature of this prophecy of Nahum against the Assyrians is a microcosm of the judgment to come upon the whole world when Christ returns. So we don't just want to camp out at the cross. We also want to keep going and then go, how does this talk about His second coming? How is this ultimately, ultimately, ultimately fulfilled when Christ returns? Well, look at this. But for those who are self-seeking, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Romans 2.8. Sound like Nahum? Wrath and fury? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let, let me ask you a question. Well, I'm going to get through these and, and then we'll ask. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Revelation 14, 8, another angel, a second following, said, saying, uh, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She made all the nations. Tell me if this sounds familiar, kind of like the, the book of Nahum. All nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
And, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. You can close the gates, but fire and sulfur are going to find you. In the presence of his, the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Have they, have, they have no rest, day or night, Night, these worshipers of the beast, its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Does that sound like Nahum? It sounds a lot like Nahum. In fact, what you'll find is the more familiar you get with the prophets in the Old Testament, the better you'll understand John in Revelation because he uses the same language. Sometimes he quotes them directly and it flies right over our head. So uh, as we think about that, what does it tell us? As we look at Jesus' second coming, not just stopping at the cross, but then we, we actually get to Jesus' second coming, it tells us, hey, this is going to be ultimately fulfilled then. So what does it tell you about now a preacher or, or maybe you at a coffee shop with your friend sharing the gospel? You pull away from those passages of judgment. You pull away from talking about hell. We steer clear of that in evangelism because you can't do the turn or burn evangelism. No one needs that. That's out of favor with our, with our society. We don't need turn or burn evangelism, don't we? The Old Testament is filled with it. Jesus, that was one of the primary means he communicated the gospel. It's better to cut your hand off than to go into hell with two hands. You better. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth there. You don't want that. For the person who causes one of these little ones, one of these little believers in me to stumble, it'd be better for a millstone to be tied around his neck and cast in the depths of the sea for what I'm going to do with him. That's terrifying. Shouldn't you tell people that? Of course you should. So once we see how this actually then applies to Christ's return, and we see it ultimately fulfilled there, then we have to ask, then and only then do we say, so then what does that mean for me? Here. So now I'm going here and going, okay, now what do I do? Now all of a sudden the application becomes pretty evident. In light of this judgment on the world, the message to us today is simple. Endure, obey, believe, and share. Right? God's judgment is coming. You're in exile here in this land in the midst of a people who are denying God left and right. You are here, endure. You may undergo suffering, endure. You may undergo many trials and hardships of various kind, be they health, be they outright persecution, be they financial, be they marital, be they all kinds of different things. You're going to undergo suffering, endure. That's what it's like in exile. But obey. If God marks out his enemies, and, and typical of his enemies are those that see him but don't obey, then the message to you is obey. Don't be them. Believe. The ones who honor the Son, who believe, who are blind and now see, have eternal life. Believe. But don't forget this. The message of Nahum is important. I want the unbeliever to read Nahum. I want him to see, or her to see, what the fury of God's wrath looks like. And then to turn to Revelation and go, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Assyria got nothing compared to what ultimately they got. And ultimately, the wrath that's stored up for you. Now, what do we do with people that want to take the hymns and edit out that, that W word, that word wrath? Let's cross that one out. No one wants to sing about the wrath of God. No. We, stead, we stand steadfast on the truth of the word that's echoed throughout the pages of Scripture. This is important. But let's look at just a couple passages real quick here at the end. Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. 
This is right after we just read about the wrath coming. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That was all the things I just told you right there. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So there's promise to the righteous, right? We don't look at death the same way as the rest of the world does. It's rest from the labors. The deeds follow them. Blessed are they who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed. Romans 10, 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? Oh, have you heard this before? Where does Paul get this? Where does he get it? Nahum, also Isaiah. He's telling them, blessed are those who, who, how sweet are the feet of those who share the good news. And remember the context of Nahum? It's all judgment. So what is Paul saying here? The rest of the world is dying. How are they to, how are they to, to preach unless they are sent? He goes on in the previous verse. How are they to believe unless someone tells them? And how are they to tell them unless they are sent? Blessed are the feet of those who share the good news. The rest of the world is dying. They're in the midst of judgment. Everything is doom and gloom. But when you come to them, and you tell them the gospel, if they understand the doom and gloom that stands before them, they will look at your feet and bless you for sharing this good news with them. Don't believe the lie that the world would tell you that no one wants to hear the gospel. That's not true. A lot of people don't. That's fine. Brush the dust off your shoulders and your feet and move on. But there are those who do. And when you share with them... They will bless you. Questions? You think you could get up off your couch after reading Nahum and go, all right. 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 Yeah. The truth is preached no matter what. I mean, imagine where we would be if every prophet was a Jonah and we had no Nahums. I mean, Nahum is going, and it depends on who you are as to how you receive Nahum's prophecy. That's the point, right? That if you revere the Lord, if you love Jesus, Nahum's prophecy is good news because you're spared that judgment. Plain and simple. Bad news for anyone else. Kai. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, when we get to Christ, Christ's righteousness fulfills the covenant. So our covenant keeping, we're actually going to talk about this on Sunday. Uh, our, our covenant keeping is, you know, we, we cannot fulfill the law of Moses, but it doesn't need to be fulfilled. It's already been fulfilled in Christ. So now our obedience takes on a different nature. Our obedience is out of love for God, which is actually the entire purpose of the law to begin with. So Moses gives the law, but he explains to them in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And these words shall be on your heart. These commandments shall be on your heart. The goal that Moses exposes us to is that it's not your strict obedience, it's your heart that then produces the obedience. So, what he means there is the same thing that the rest of the Bible means when it says obey. So th that's, 
We'll talk about Sunday, and then we'll, we'll continue to get into this, uh, uh, the rest of the prophets. But it's the obedience is given to us in Christ, but then we are enabled to obey because of the heart that he has changed, which Moses tells us is necessary in order to obey. Go ahead. So, uh, so come to Charlie's building block. That was what that meant. That was a plug. That, he was like, he was like, I'm plugging. Or, or it was just listen to that. And you have some... Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, to for Paul to really work out, okay, faith alone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I could probably spend an entire Wednesday night on exactly that, but, and we'll probably do it one day. But Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for Nahum, uh, a book that maybe many of us maybe have never read. And we're grateful for the message of Nahum to us. We're grateful for how it applies to us and how it takes our eyes to Jesus, who has fulfilled all of these things, who has protect protected us, who has brought us in to the shelter of your holy name. We thank you for that. We pray that you would use this word to bless us long into the future in Jesus' name. Amen.